Hello, and welcome to the Reforming Worship Podcast, brought to you by the Church of Philadelphia in Traverse City, Michigan. A 21st century Reformation cry for the Christian church to worship God as he has prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. I'm Andrew Smitty, the host and content manager, introducing Pastor Caleb Leach as he continues part two of our last episode titled The Gospel According to the Scriptures. So it's my great honor and privilege, without further ado, Pastor Caleb. Thanks, Andrew. All right. So we started talking about the gospel, and we have to start there because we are not of the same mind when it comes to the gospel with a large part of what calls itself American evangelicalism or American Christianity pretty much worldwide. I mean, that's the real pandemic is this false gospel that's going everywhere. We need to bring it back to a couple questions. Who is God and what happened in the atonement? Or who is Jesus and what happened on the cross? So when we ask this question, any doctrine, any uh, any statement, any uh, personally held belief that changes the answer to either one of those questions, who is God and what happened in the atonement, any um, any argument that exalts itself against the knowledge of God is something that needs to be cut down. It needs to be addressed. The gospel today is not the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection that we are telling people, as I'm talking broadly in the church today, is not the gospel at all. So I'm going to be accused of uh, dividing the church over secondary doctrines. And I just want, I want to head off that accusation right now by saying, if it changes the answer to one of those questions, who is Jesus, what happened on the cross? If it changes the answer to one of those questions, it's not a secondary doctrine at all. Well, last week we, we started talking about the gospel itself, and we, we talked about the part that all Christians say they agree with. Now, whether they live that way or not, that, that is to be examined. But we talked about sola scriptura, that the scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith in the church. They are the court of appeals. They are the authority by which there is no other appeal, beyond which there is no other appeal. We have a, um, we have a revelational epistemology. Epistemology means how you know what you know, the study of how you know what you know. Pistis being faith, study of. We have a revelational epistemology. We start with the word of God. The word of God takes precedence over my experience, over my feelings, over my dearly held beliefs, and over the traditions of men. Now, we all have traditions. They're either biblical traditions or they're not biblical traditions. And also, I want to mention and reemphasize, I know we talked about this last week, but I want to reemphasize, that doesn't mean that the scriptures are the only authority. So low scriptura is actually a heresy in the way that it, it, it can do incredible damage um, to the Christian faith. We believe that everything the Christian needs for life and godliness is either explicitly stated in the scriptures or from good and natural causes, good and necessary causes. And the, the Douglas Wilson example, and it's a good one, is where in the Bible does it say God created porcupines? Por um, it, it, it doesn't, but it says that God created all things. So uh, that it's that kind of understanding. It's a silly example, but I like it. Um, the, the Bible doesn't tell you how often to change your oil. The Bible doesn't tell you who to marry. The Bible doesn't tell you a lot of things, but it's from good and necessary causes. We learn the wisdom by which we apply uh, to other areas of life. So that's the part that um, if you're not Roman Catholic and you're not Eastern Orthodox, you probably agreed with last week what we had to say about the Scriptures. Maybe you heard it in a new way. Maybe you've just heard 
Uh, maybe you already know the people who have taught me, so you've heard all these things before. We got wonderful agreement with the scriptures. Now, I'm going to hold you to consistency on that, and I'm going to say, if you agree with me that the scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith in the church, and the scriptures say that the gospel is something different than Jesus loves you and had a wonderful plan for your life, has a wonderful plan for your life, or Jesus died for you and all you have to do now is repent and believe, which I've heard countless times. Jesus did it all, and now if you repent and believe, then salvation will be applied to your life. And of course, the call is to repent and believe, surely. But the Bible has a lot to say about who's going to do that, right? So when we're recovering worship, when we're reforming worship, at the heart of worship is our revelational epistemology. The Bible informs us who Jesus is, why he's worthy of worship, and how to worship him. At the heart of that, it's what he has done for us. And that is the gospel. That is the great mystery, Paul calls it. The 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 riches, the the height, the depth, the width of the mercy and the love of God that was in Christ Jesus from the beginning. So we talked about first Corinthians fifteen three, for I delivered to you a first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Those are the bookends on the gospel. According to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. I've heard people say that um, the death, burial, and the resurrection, that's, that's, um, that's the bare minimalist gospel. That's, the, in, that's, uh, that's all you need to be saved. And that's not the case. It's according to the scriptures and according to the scriptures. Now remember, they didn't, um, they didn't text in all caps or uh, they didn't uh, you know, um, underline it or circle it or anything else. How you emphasize something in both Hebrew and Greek is you repeat it. God isn't just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Right? Jesus' words aren't just true. They're truly, truly, I say unto you. Right? So when he's emphasizing according to the scriptures, here's the real, here's the essence of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, was buried, raised again on the third day, according to the scripture. Now that you believe that, spend the rest of your life seeking out what that means. So at the heart of this, we're going to deal with part one was according to the scriptures. Part two is Christ died for our sins. Those three words, for our sins. We have to talk about what that means. We have to talk about what that means. Okay, so we are anxious to make God fair and appealing to the unbeliever. We are anxious to make God not offensive. Now, I I know plenty of people who take pride in preaching hellfire and brimstone, but at the end of the day, hellfire and brimstone is a method of preaching. It's a way to make themselves feel really hardcore in their faith and whatnot. But in reality, when something about God offends them, the answer is not, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The answer is, our doctrine has to change, or that verse can't really mean what it just said. We are okay with owning that God is God, and in order for God to be God, Jonathan Edwards makes this argument, he has to know all things. And he has to know all things before all things were, or else he's learning and functioning in time. Therefore, God knows all things before they happen, therefore he purposefully decreed them. If he's all-knowing and all-powerful, his decree forms 
the function in fabric of time. We don't need Jonathan Edwards to get there. Isaiah 46 says that straight out, 8 through 10. In Ephesians 1.11, he predestines all things after the counsel of his will. But when we get to our doctrine of the atonement, we turn the cross into a hypothetical. It's a contingency plan. It's not actually salvation. Christ did this for you, and if you accept him, it will be efficacious for you. That is, Christ did all the pleasing of the Father. Now you have to just sign on the dotted line. Now every religion has this. All you have to do is dot, dot, dot. Rome has the hamster wheel of the seven sacraments. It's works-based because it's contingent on you. And our works-based system is when we say you have to believe and you have to repent. So it goes like this. I'm going to, I'm going to state it straight out, and then we're going to defend it. I'm going to state it, and then I'm going to defend it. Christ's death secured the salvation of the church. The church is made up of people that God is drawing to the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Their number cannot be added to or taken away from. These people individually are called the elect or children of God, and corporately as a whole they are the church or the bride of Christ. Christ's death actually secures their salvation. Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and intercession secures their salvation, not makes it a possibility. And before you're making, you're adding to the gospel. You're making Calvinism a a primary doctrine when it's a secondary doctrine. You're going to split churches. Listen, my Arminian brother for a second, or my kind of squishy Calvinist brother who has lots of Arminian friends, maybe. All right. When the two of us, a staunch Arminian and myself, are standing outside of the abortion mill proclaiming the gospel of God, and someone comes up to us and says, you're right, what must I do to be saved? All right, and we may both say the same thing, repent and believe. All right, I would definitely say repent and be baptized. I'll see you Sunday, right? The reality is, what do we just believe happened? If I believe the Holy Spirit gave him a new heart so he can repent and believe, if indeed he did, therefore the call to repent and believe is an, is an, is an actuating the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he just gave him, the gifts of repentance and faith. And my and my brother right along the other uh, right right next to me, my brother right next to me, says, um, "No, no, no. Christ died for everybody. It's the repentance and the belief that kind of activated their salvation." Again, what I said at the beginning: if you change the answer to one of those questions, who is Jesus and what happened on the cross, you've changed the gospel. This is not a secondary issue at all. Now. Am I saying that all Arminians are damned? No, I am not. I am not saying that by any means God is kind and there is that blessed inconsistency where they glorify God for saving them when actually he just made it a possibility. So love you guys. I love you guys enough to talk to you plainly. Let's dig into the text. Romans 5, 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, who is the us? Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
The us in this text are those who have been saved from the wrath of God. It's a point we're going to develop just a little bit more later. But here's the reality. Christ bore the wrath of God. When we talk about salvation, we're talking about what are you saved from? We're talking about Christ saving us from the wrath of God. You know, people will say, I'm saved from my sin. Well, yes, in a sense that's true, but in another sense, it's like, how's that going? Uh, oh, I'm saved from, um, I'm saved from the devil. Well, the devil wasn't after you, <laughs> right? You're saved from the wrath of God. You have to understand the atonement was to God. He was not buying us back from Satan. The atonement was Christ being simultaneously the sacrifice and the high priest. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. And that he has made satisfaction for the wrath of God. Purgatory's out. Sacramentalism is out. Works is out. You initiating with God is out. So, Christ died for us. How much more than now being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. When Christ paid the penalty for us before God, did he pay the penalty for everybody on on planet earth that will ever live? No, there would be nothing to accuse them before the throne. I've heard some people say that um, Christ paid for all sins except for the sins of unbelief, uh, the sin of unbelief. Well, hold on. We were all unbelieving before we came to him, were we not? That, it's kind of an amazing thing. If Christ didn't die for the sin of unbelief, we're all hosed. And would you say that your faith is perfect? So he's still interceding past your sin of unbelief. That's my only hope. That's your only hope. No, for whom Christ paid the penalty for the wrath of God, their sins will never be imputed to them, period. End of discussion. If Christ paid the penalty for everybody's sin, then everybody would be in heaven. There would be no hell. That is our universalist friends. That is their argumentation. So, Christ, if he died for the sins of... Here, going off of John Owen here. Christ, if he died for the sins of all men everywhere, then all men would be saved. If he died for none of the sins... Uh, uh, of 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 men, then then we would all be going to hell. If he died for all but one, the sin of unbelief, we're all guilty of unbelief in varying degrees. No one would be saved. The only alternative is that Christ died for all of the sins of some men. All of the sins of some men, and that's where we get into the purpose of creation. God did not give Adam a car that he crashed, and then he's been trying to fix things for the last 6,000 years. That is not the reality. The Lord has decreed the end from the beginning. We are in his story. The story is glory be his name. That is the whole point of this entire display of God's goodness. This is where the Lord is displaying all of his attributes, his attributes of wrath and righteousness and justice and mercy. All of the glory that we see in the triune God is happening in this world. The, the pinnacle of this is the death, burial, and the resurrection, and the only authority by which we can claim these things are the scriptures. So, for whom Christ paid the debt of the wrath of God, um, those people are saved, period. End of discussion. He accomplished their salvation. He has 
he has um, eternally, he has forever saved those who are being sanctified. By one sacrifice, he has saved forever those who are being sanctified. So, when we understand something, that for whom Christ paid the debt, he actually accomplished their salvation. We can understand that nobody is in hell for whom Christ died. Furthermore, we can take a much more serious view of sin. The accusation that comes against Calvinists a lot is that we we do away with the law, or we don't take um, we don't take obedience seriously because we're all just predestined. Actually, it's just the opposite as it's played out in church history. And you can say that's an inconsistency if you want, but the reality is we take sin far more seriously, right? We take sin far more seriously. Sin will be dealt with. God forgives sinners. He does not forgive sin, right? Your sin will be dealt with or has been dealt with. It either will be dealt with in, in an eternity in hell or it has been dealt with at the cross. There is no in-between. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live not I, but Christ lives in me. Can anybody in hell say that? Can anybody in hell say, Christ died for my sins and I thwarted his grace by my almighty free will? Is that even a possibility? If that is a possibility in your doctrine, in your understanding, I invite you to repent. Furthermore, Acts 20, 28 Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is Paul talking to the elders in Ephesians. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. So what have we learned so far? Christ paid the wrath, the penalty for the wrath of God. Christ bore the wrath of God on behalf of the us in Romans. And in Acts 20.28, 20, he purchased his church with his own blood. Let's uh, go to a little bit of a longer passage of scripture. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any other man in his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see and what they have not heard they shall consider who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the lord revealed for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as the root out of the dry ground he has no form or comeliness and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him he is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he abhorred our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Okay, so we thought, we thought he was being cursed by God, but he was bearing our curse. He was wounded for our transgressions. Who's the our? Who's the us? Who are these, who are, who are these pronouns referring to? Well, Acts 20, 28 tells us straight out. It's the church, but we'll, we'll get even more specific as far as the books go. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generations? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, 
but with the rich in his death, because he has done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Listen to this. Hear the word of the Lord here. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Please never forget that. Was it sin and evil on behalf of Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, the Roman soldiers? Yes, it was sin and evil on their behalf. But God has decreed that it would be. He has decreed to use evil. And I'm not saying aloud. He caused this to happen. Their hearts were truly evil, truly wrong. Their motivations, they did what they wanted to do. Yet God was pleased to bruise him. He had to put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, that offering for sin is really, in the Septuagint, he even uses the same word for he was made sin who knew no sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Listen to this. When you, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He, all of them? Did he know who they were? Did he learn that by looking down the corridors of time? Or does God not learn? God doesn't learn. He is the fountain of all knowledge. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Listen to this. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify all, everybody. Who's the hour? My righteous servant shall justify the many. Why? Why? On what basis can he justify the many? Because they repented and believed? No, for he shall bear their iniquities. Everybody who Christ has bore their iniquities is justified, period. Now the Lord allows us to feel estranged from him. The Lord allows us to know what it was like to be, many of us, not all of us, sons of disobedience. So we want to we wanna guard against the error of eternal justification. That is, that um, there isn't a time of awakening. There isn't a time of effectual calling. We deny that too. I'm saying for all those Christ died, they are in one sense, and will be justified. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul into death. That was the efficacy of his death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. What a magnificent passage. What a magnificent passage. Anybody who deals with Reformed theology at all gets to hear this all the time. You either love it or you hate it. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. <laughs> this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. All these wonderful passages Another one, 44, no one can come, no, I'm in John 6, by the way. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amazing, over and over again in John. He, he does it again, but we're going to cut this just a little bit short for time's sake. John 10, starting in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And remember, he leaves the hundred. He leaves the ninety-nine and goes for the one wandering sheep. Nowhere does it doesn't describe him as going wrangling goats, does it? I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Sheep. <laughs> 
they get frustrated with Jesus and they ask him, are you, if you're the Christ, tell us, don't keep us in doubt. What are you doing? Verse 25, Jesus says, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. They bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Man, that's totally opposite how it was always taught to me growing up. You become a sheep by believing, I thought. Jesus said, you don't believe because you're not one of my sheep. God chooses who the sheep are. God chooses who the goats are. And a characteristic of the sheep is that they will believe. Now, hopefully, everybody's listening to the end of this because I want to, I want to make it so clear. No one is saved without repentance and faith. No one is saved without repentance and faith. Repentance and faith will happen in the life of every true believer. Repentance and faith are gifts of God. 2 Timothy 2.25, Ephesians 2, 8-10, Philippians 1, 29, 2 Peter 1, 1, Acts 11, uh, round verse 18. The Jews are marveling that it's been granted for the Gentiles to believe. Over and over again, true repentance, true faith is a gift from God and therefore cannot be a work. It's a reaction to what God does, not the action that puts you in right standing with God. Words of Ezekiel 36, 25 through 34. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I will put in a new heart and a new spirit and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. It's only in verse 34 that it's a, that the Lord says to the house of Israel, then, then you will lament the evil that you've done. You will lament your evil ways. And the Lord says at the beginning of that dissertation and at the end, not for your own sake will I do this, but for the, for the greatness of my name, I will sanctify my name. So a couple things to walk away from. Uh, to walk away with with this. Number one, you're saved by the kind actions of Christ, his, sac- his sacrifice and his intercession before the Father through the giving of the Holy Spirit to communicate this newness of life, this spiritual life, from spiritual death to spiritual life in Ephesians 2. That repentance and that faith that was just a reaction to what Christ has done. It was a necessary reaction. It was the only intelligible reaction. But dear Christian, Christ didn't just initiate with you. Christ brought you into newness of life. Christ brought you through his intercession. He saved you to the uttermost in Hebrews 7.25. Through his intercession, he saved you to the uttermost. If there's any degree of boasting in you whatsoever, if there's any degree of, of uh, thinking that you chose God, rather than God choosing you. If you think you've done anything, if you've had any of the skin in the game, I don't care if you're thinking God did 99% of it and you've done 1%. I'm telling you, you're along for the ride because you have a good shepherd. Therefore, nothing can take you from the Father's hand or the Son's hand. Both of them together, you're in the fist of Almighty God. The question, the silly question, can you lose your salvation? I'm here to tell you, if salvation was ever yours, you could lose it. I promise. My car keys are witness. All right. I'm telling you that no one can take you from Christ's hand. 
That's what we're talking about when we talk about perseverance of the saints. What's the difference between you and an unbeliever? Are you, were you more spiritually sensitive? Did you hear reason? Were you, were you gripped by the gospel more? Did you have better discernment? More wisdom? Or is it just simply the kind intention of God's will? I want to I want to I want to push you just a little bit on that. If you're foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, like Romans 8:29 through 31 says, the name for that type of person is the elect in Romans 8:34. That was the us of Romans 5 where we started today. So the only response is gratitude. Gratitude, just be so thankful that Christ has been kind to you for no other reason than the kind intention of his will. And then go proclaim the gospel with boldness because it was never the gospel proclamation that saved anybody. That's the means God used. God predestines the means and the end. He often predestines the means of the proclamation of the gospel like Romans 10 says. There's a reason Romans 10 comes right after Romans 9. Romans 9, all about election and predestination. And then Romans 10 says, oh, yes, and this is how God is predestined to do this. So go preach the gospel with boldness. And don't worry about screwing anything up. Because if the Holy Spirit's in it, they're coming to spiritual life. They're coming to Christ. It's the definance of the atonement. He didn't make salvation a possibility. He made salvation a reality for his sheep who will at least eventually repent and believe. And that is a great cause to worship.